Welcome to How to Love Forever. In this episode, we explore the magical world of gender diversity. We take a look at how sexual identity is quickly changing and how its laser-quick evolution affects individuals, relationships, and society. We inquire about how we, as a pretty average couple, can be an ally to those whose voices still need to be heard. We have a long conversation with the multi-pronouned, pan-gendered, and simply awesome executive director of a rights advocacy group for the LGBTQIA plus community. They teach us what the A stands for. <laughs> All, All coming, coming up, up right, right now. Hi, I'm Marco. And I'm Heather. We invite you on a journey of discovery as we explore techniques, tools, and inspiration to better our love lives and our sex lives. Join us as we travel the world, seeking out the stories that can help improve how we do romance and relationships. Come with us as we discover how, how to, to love, love forever. forever. Hi, love bunnies. Welcome to today's episode of How to Love Forever, the podcast that explores love, relationships, and sexuality. My name is Heather. Hi, love bunnies. I am Marco. In today's episode, we get to talk to Cy Burnaby of Gender Justice Nevada, an equal rights advocacy group handling LGBTQIA plus concerns and affairs in Sin City. You know what? I always thought the A plus in LGBTQIA plus meant people who get very good grades in school. <laughs> No, I always thought it was more of a blood type. Really, a blood type? Yeah, I, I mean, I'm an, a, I'm an A. I'm an A pause. You're an you A know, positive. Yeah, because I get the best blood grades. Mm. And I was an A plus <laughs> student, so that's something that you and I have in common. But Look it turns that. out that's not what it means in LGBTQIA plus. Turns out it isn't. Yeah, we learned. Thought? We learned so much. <laughs> Oh, we're always learning here. <laughs> we sure are. <laughs> so, so shout out to Cy Burnaby for an amazing interview. Thank you so much mm -hmm. for donating your time to educate us all about what's going on. They provided an amazing amount of great conversation. Yeah, a really fantastic conversation. So much fascinating information. And yeah, let's get into it. Diving right in. Ladies and gentlemen, and everyone in between and beyond, presenting our interview with Cy Burnaby. Today, we are fortunate enough to talk to Cy Burnaby, who has been a social justice warrior for over 25 years. They are currently the executive director of Gender Justice Nevada, which educates allies, empowers LGBTQ plus people, and advocates for the justice and dignity of that community. They have worked with AIDS Project Los Angeles, Aid for AIDS of Nevada, and the LGBT Center of Southern Nevada, and has been a proud member of the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. I love that organization. It's so much fun. A radical queer organization that helps raise funds for LGBTQ plus people. They are dedicated to an intersectional and inclusive approach to teaching, community, mobilizing, and activism with the queer community. They identify as transmasculine and non-binary and use all the pronouns. They have worked as an outreach worker, case manager, and educator with HIV plus people, gender diverse communities, and LGBTQ plus youth. They have a degree in secondary education, which they use to train community-based organizations, law enforcement, teachers, medical providers, and other people seeking to support marginalized LGBTQ plus people. They also facilitate a Shakespeare's Bureau. Speakers Bureau. They also, <laughs> they also facilitate a Speakers Bureau. I don't know how that became Shakespeare's. They also participate. They also facilitate a Speakers Bureau, which teaches LGBTQ plus people in using their voice as a tool to increase visibility and understanding. Cy 
enjoys traveling, dismantling the system, and embarrassing their kids on social media. And who does not, really? That is the one thing that ties us all together. Hi, Sai. Hey, Sai. Hi. <laughs> Welcome Hi, to the pod. Hi, thank you for having me. Yeah, well, it's thank you so much you. for joining us. We really appreciate it. So it's actually interesting because Marco... Uh, read your bio and you sent it to us but you specifically included she also facilitates so you use all terms that does that ever confuse people or does it just make it easier it sometimes confuses people which is kind of what i'm going for yeah (laughs) as a (laughs) as a gender rebel as someone who's not binary i really like to expand people's concept of social you know of the social construct of gender and the fact that as a non-binary person how i how i define it for myself is that I'm rejecting the binary, meaning that I'm rejecting binary terms, but I also encompass the space between it. And so for me, I'm kind of new in my gender journey, although it's been my whole life. It's really been the last couple of years that I've socially and medically transitioned. Mm -hmm. And so for me, and I find this with a lot of trans folks, there's still limitations as to how we can label ourselves, how we can walk through the world, what we can do. And a lot of those things are based in where we find ourselves. And for, for me, I'm a mom. And I love being a mom. I'm a mama. I'm mama. My spouse is mommy. Hmm, And as mama, a lot of times you would use she, her pronouns. Also, as a drag performer, as a sister of perpetual indulgence, my drag name is Sister Hope. And so people would naturally use she, her pronouns there. Hmm. Um, I prefer they, them. I use it in a lot of my writing. And I, I enjoy he, him as well. There are times that that really affirms me and my masculinity. Um, and that may change, you know, a couple of years from now, I might really say, you know what, I kind of tried those out and I like them, but I really like they, them. But it is also based on the environment I find myself in. It's based on safety. There's a lot of spaces where using they, them pronouns puts you in a, in a space where you're outed as a trans or non-binary person. So as a lot of folks in the queer community do, we often have to kind of, it, it's a form of code switching in a way, and that we're changing how we're talking and how we're behaving and the pronouns and names we're using for our own safety. And so, yeah, for me, long answer for a very short question is that, yeah, I use them right now and I'm comfortable with them, but that might change. Okay. So am I clear in understanding what you're communicating that you code switch, as you called it, uh, between the pronouns, just depending on what particular social role you are inhabiting at that moment? Yeah, if I'm, you know, for, for instance, I work in a very queer-centered organization. I work within the queer community. My colleagues, people I work closely with use they, them a lot because they understand and they get it and they don't question the concept of using it for a singular pronoun. I don't have to do a whole history lesson about that. Right. But if I'm in a space where I'm at a teacher, a parent-teacher conference and I'm talking to, to folks about my kids' education and they use she, her, I'm not offended by it because I know in that context, that's where they're at. And I'm there to support my child and it's not really about me mm. um but like i said i do prefer they them but it really matters the settings that i'm in right it absolutely mm-hmm. makes sense and i think honestly understanding what code switching is we all do it to some extent within our lives you know yeah. if we're hanging oh, yeah, out definitely. with our our rock and roll progressive friends or if we're hanging out with our family or if we're yep. in a business meeting 
Marco, you know, he's originally from Mexico. And just depending on who he's speaking with in Mexico, his accent changes, the way he relates to them completely changes. The way I see it, language is an interface. And so, you know, you use a different version of language for interfacing with a different person who has a different life experience, you know, in order to fulfill certain certain prerequisites, like not getting discounted, you know, or, or not getting excluded or, you know, not getting aggressed upon, you know, those kind of things. Uh, it's not a hiding thing. It's just you are a chameleon. That's a superpower. And I think that this yeah, is the fun is. part about the LGBTQIA plus kind of community is that nowadays it's sort of uh, becoming a, a, a superpower that is no longer just linguistically. It is it is identity based. You know, it's chameleonizing. Yep who you can be because that's just a, a tweak, you know, you're, you're hacking identity. Yeah. Well, and especially, especially when you're traveling into spaces that may not be as affirming, you know, I've been to Jamaica, Jamaica has laws that you can be arrested if you are perceived to be gay. Yeah. There are also countries around the world where you can be put to death. You can be stoned to death. You yeah. can be executed for being gay. Mm-hmm. So in those spaces, I am not going to, hold my partner's hand. I am not going to act in any non-binary or trans way. I'm not going to challenge the gender norms there because that would jeopardize my own safety. Mm-hmm. And that's everything from our language to, like you said, how how we act, how we dress, things like that. I, I have a very masculine presence, um, but I remember being in Utah on Easter Sunday many, many years ago wearing pants, not realizing <laughs> that I was definitely like not like everybody else there. And everybody was staring at me because here I was perceived to be a woman wearing pants. And I was like, wow, you know? And and those are the things that a lot of times when we are so surrounded within our own culture, like I am, I'm so part of the queer culture here. um, I really, you know, I'm around like-minded people who are okay with me challenging those norms. But if we're in a space all of a sudden where we're not, then yeah, we have these defense mechanisms that keep us safe. Well, we all choose our level of activism, don't we? Because we know what kind of warrior and what level of strength of warrior we are. And yeah, I mean, if you're going to a place like Nigeria, for example, where you can be put to death for being queer of any kind, you, I mean, on the one hand, it's like you're a visiting person. Therefore, like, is it really even your place? And but on the other hand, like, we are all human and we are all together and everyone must be liberated. You know what I mean? (laughs) So it's like, where where does one draw the line? I mean, obviously, we draw the line where our personal priorities lie. You want to be there when you come back or you want to come back to the United States to be there for your children. (laughs) You know, you want to come back and and be. It's a good idea to be. So speaking of, uh, you know, fighting for justice, right? You are gendergesticenevada.org. Shout out. Yeah. And obviously (laughs) we will have the links in the notes for everyone to check out and donate and support. Tell us what gender justice does. So we have kind of a three-pronged approach in what we do now. We've shifted, obviously, since 2020, we've shifted a lot of what we do and how we're able to you know, do community mobilizing, how we're able to interact and uplift folks in our community. But where we're at now with our organization is we do three things. One, we educate. And, you know, I am an eternal optimist. I've been doing this for, as you said, 25 years now. I I really believe that one of the strongest weapons we have in overcoming ignorance and hate Mm. is people really understanding who we are, what Mm. the terminology is, what the history of oppression is, what is best practices 
in serving our population. You know, I, I often train medical providers and most medical providers will say, well, listen, you know, my, my intent is never to harm. I took a Hippocratic oath. I would never, you know, discriminate. And my, com my, my response to that is that you might not have the intent to harm, but the impact is still the same. If you are using outdated language, or if you are saying things that could put us in danger or that make us feel unsafe, then there is the, the concept of minority health model, I'm sorry, minority stress model within healthcare that those of us who are marginalized tend to not seek as much healthcare and have higher disparities in our issues, in our, in our healthcare issues, because we do not find these providers safe. And they are not most, usually not intending to be unsafe, but they can be very harmful. And so I train medical providers, I train teachers, therapists, you know, most folks who say, I am an ally to the LGBTQ community, look at me, I've got the rainbow, you know, look at me, I, I sponsor pride parades, things like that. And that's great. But a lot of that is really just performative. And if you say you're an ally to any community, whether it's LGBTQ or people of color or indigenous or Muslim, any marginalized community, the onus is on you to be educated about us. And so I provide these trainings, I call them ally trainings, it's kind of like a 101 of everything from the Kinsey scale of zero to six and the history of understanding queerness and then understanding how language evolves because mm. language is a moving thing. Mm -hmm. um, linguistics, the cornerstone of linguistics is that it grows and that's why they update the dictionary every year. Yeah. And so for a lot of people who say, well, I was raised and I just knew this and this. And I said, well, you know, when I came out in the nineties, we only had like five terms, right? Yet here I am growing and understanding and appreciating that those terms evolve and they grow to be more inclusive and so it's really just getting the opportunity to share space with people and give that information and give those tools and if they choose then to continue to be ignorant there's not much i can do but what i find is when we do these organizational assessments and we do evaluations i first ask how competent do you think you are in understanding us and being able to support us and people say i don't know a six or a seven but when they get all of that information and they get all of that, then they go, oh, okay, now I don't, now I feel empowered. Now I feel if I have a non-binary patient who comes to me, I know that I should not ask about their dead name. I know that it is inappropriate to do this. I know that being trans doesn't always mean this, this, and that, and that it's inappropriate to gatekeep. So training and education is one of the biggest things we do. Another prong that we do is empowering people in our community. So like I said, I train folks. If they are comfortable and wanting to share their, their story, I can train someone to take their life story from literally birth to where they're at now and go through their journey of learning and maybe the discrimination they have faced and sharing that with an audience, whether it is after I do a 101 or in front of a Senate panel who is looking at changing legislation or working with the media like you, like how does someone sit down and share certain things that can, you know, change hearts and minds. Mm -hmm. And for most people who have issues of transphobia or have issues of people being gay, it's because they don't know someone. They've mm -hmm. never listened to their stories. Most people who are so adamantly opposed to trans people playing sports or, you know, trans healthcare, they've never really sat down with a trans person to understand their healthcare needs and why it is life 
saving to provide this health care and why it is so necessary and it's so integral in the validation of who we are to understand us and our, in our lived experiences. And the third thing that we do is we do community mobilizing so that when there's legislation that is going through or there's policy work to be done, I meet with folks and it could be a state senator, it could be a school board member. And if they're looking at passing a policy that would directly affect LGBTQ people's specifically really trans, non-binary folks, um, I say, let's look at the language. Let's look at a couple years ago when they tried to pass this legislation in Tennessee, and this is why it didn't work, or this is why it did work. And if you need folks to testify, if you need people to give you a two-minute testimony about how this bill would affect them, I can get them together for you. I can have them present so that we have that. So it's those three things that are really kind of what we do, the bulk of what we do here, but we also do advocacy. So if a person, you know, Las Vegas is a very transient city. We have new people every day that come from other states and somebody might simply call me and say, hey, listen, I'm looking for an affirming, um, you know, gynecologist, or I'm looking for a therapist. I'm looking for a school that will be affirming to my child. What are the laws here regarding bathrooms? So I can, you know, meet with them and go, okay, welcome to Vegas. Here's the good, here's the bad. <laughs> and, and we have a on, you know, we have a referral list that we vet that we know are good. And then we, we do that really with marginalized communities. When it comes to providers, it's really word of mouth. If you have had a terrible interaction with someone, we tell each other that. And we let each other know that that place is unsafe. Don't go there. Um, but then that also gives us opportunity to go in and educate those folks. And then maybe they can become allies and be better for our community. It sounds like you you do a lot. And that was going to be my next question. How do you get connected with these different organizations or doctors or uh, politicians to make sure that you're working hand in hand? Well, I think, you know, what's what's really interesting right now is that there's a cultural tipping point. Mm -hmm. with the trans community. Mm -hmm. And it, it really kind of, you know, after equal marriage went through, there was this collective joy within the queer community of like, oh, wow, we can legally get married. The Supreme Court has validated our relationships. Yeah, we shared but what happened was, yeah. yeah, but there was backlash to that. There was people saying we did not want that for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. And the next, really the next big, you know, thing that was happening was transgender rights. And what we saw was Laverne Cox coming out. And well, mm -hmm. she had already been out, but finding success as a trans uh, actress, mm -hmm. as a woman of color. Um, and then we saw people like Caitlyn Jenner come out, who turned out to be a, honestly, just a, a complete stain on our community. There's there's nothing I have good to say about Caitlyn Jenner. It was a bit and of I always a curveball. tell folks that when she came out, I remember thinking, okay, this is another famous person coming out. When I was a kid, we had no trans people. We had we had none that were famous. Mm -mm. And we barely had queer people. You could literally count them on one hand. When yeah. I came out, Ellen wasn't out yet. Anderson Cooper wasn't out. Nobody was out, right? So it was a huge risk to come out as a famous person. So when Caitlyn Jenner came out, we all held our breath and said, okay, maybe this will be a good thing. Maybe this will bring visibility to trans folks everywhere. Mm -hmm. Then she turned out to be horrible in many ways. And what happened was there was this backlash, you know, of like, well, look, why, why aren't you, you know, supportive of Caitlyn Jenner? I am very supportive of her as a trans woman, and I will always respect her pronouns and her identity. But I think as a human being, she's trash. And I think that she is counterproductive to our movement. And I think that one thing as somebody in a marginalized community is that not everybody who is in our community is really representative of positive people in our community. Right. And well, so I think that in the last couple of years, we've had this 
huge onslaught of legislation that has been brought against the trans community because it is the next, you know, it when bullies bully and they can't bully gay people for getting married anymore, they're going to go after people who threaten gender norms. And that's what we do. We, we challenge a society that was built on gender norms to control people. And so what we've seen last year was a record amount of pieces of legislation that were passed that not only attack trans adults, but trans youth, mm. trans athletes um, in multiple states. We also saw this year as a direct result of the political unrest that we've had in the last couple of years, what we saw was the deadliest year on record for transgender people. And this is an epidemic that we need to pay attention to because when these hate crimes happen, it changes culture. So I think in the last couple of years, um, and I hope I answered the question with that, um, it's really a time for us to understand as a society where we wanna be, what side of this we wanna be on. Because down the road, people will know they were on the wrong side of history with this. They mm. will. It's just like yeah. with gay rights. But we fought really hard. I remember doing queer activism in the 90s and fighting so hard. That was also a result of the AIDS epidemic, which is which enabled a lot of really ignorant, horrible evangelicals to weaponize that virus and, and be against gay people. And mm -hmm. so the fights that we're having now about trans rights are very similar to the fights that the battles we went through in the 80s of them saying that we shouldn't be open, of invalidating us, of saying that we shouldn't be a part of society and trying to erase us. They tried to do that with queer people decades ago. They tried to prevent gay people from being school teachers mm -hmm. and being a part of government or athletes. We've, we've been there before. Yeah. We know this fear mongering and we know the playbook. So mm -hmm. what it takes, though, is for trans folks to step up and be visible. And that's really hard for a lot of us because, again, it goes back to safety. Right. Well, and it always comes down to when we want when we need progress and what you were talking about, you know, when people have these, you know, fears or phobias or, or um, bigotry towards certain peoples, it's because they just haven't met any they haven't been exposed to so representation is always always key you know you need to normalize yeah. people are people and they come in all these new flavors that you weren't aware of so check it out <laughs> including the jerks yeah, I mean, you know, yeah. that's one of the things about, you know, going yeah. back to Caitlyn Jenner, well, for me, it was a thing about uh, when you it, it's a hallmark of how far you've come uh -huh. <laughs> when somebody is yeah. out. And not only can you be proud of their outness, you can also be like, oh, I don't know that person. You're, you know, <laughs> that person doesn't represent the yeah. rest of us. You know, it's like, OK. Yeah, And I think, yeah. And it's it, what's really interesting to me is that there's a lot of discourse within the LGBTQ community, you know, for the longest time, for the from the beginning of the LGBTQ rights movement, it was it was spearheaded by gay cisgender men, mm -hmm. white men. And they got all the glory and everybody knows who Harvey Milk is and not to take away from from the great work he did. Mm -hmm. But it was Marsha Johnson. It was trans women of color who were at Stonewall, who risked their lives for queer rights. But we don't read about them and we don't know that. Well, I know that history, but most people don't. Yeah. And I think that visibility does help increase awareness and understanding. And whenever I talk to medical providers, I say, I'm sure a lot of you think you've never shared space with tra a trans person or ever had a trans patient or a colleague who is trans, but I can guarantee you, you have, you just didn't know it. Mm. And that speaks volumes because, and I know when I'm teaching, I know people in the audience who are trans, who are what we call leading a stealth life, meaning that they don't tell people they are trans. Mm. And 
I say, um, I encourage you to create a safe space and not tell anti-gay or trans jokes or make comments about Caitlyn Jenner because the minute you do that, that's going to prevent that colleague from coming out to you. Mm -hmm. And if you have that opportunity to share space with someone that you are not like, whether it's because of their sexuality or gender identity or religion, you get an opportunity to really shut up and listen to them. You will learn and you will understand that we're all human beings. We all want the same things in life, but you have to create that space and be open to listening to them. And that's what we're here for, for that creating a space for listening and learning. Yeah. In fact, yesterday, Heather and I were having a bit of a conversation about who's our audience, right? Because, you know, I'm cis dude, you know, and Heather's cis woman. <laughs> you know, we are a relatively uh, heteroflex kind of couple, you know? Um, but, uh, but here it is, you know, we are open-minded and open-hearted and we want to show support and we want to grow as society mutates. We want to be like up on the latest, you know, identity trends and all of that stuff. But mm -hmm. like we, I was, uh, 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 I was communicating my concern, uh, that we were sort of like the minority in that conversation space that I was finding online. You know, because there's a lot of yeah. very out and proud people. There's a lot of people who are like uh, gender fucking out there, you know, and there's a lot of people who are like doing like body positivity stuff, you know, and, and like, you know, like every single little front in that larger fight is is out there. And it's very and it's very inspiring. But then I kind of looked at myself in the mirror and I'm like, dude, I'm a dude, you know, and <laughs> and with uh, and with Heather. And I'm just like, yeah, you're like a beautiful mermaid woman. And, and so here we were like thinking to ourselves, is it OK for us to be here? And uh, and that's the thing is that we're here coming from an angle of, I guess, almost like representing the people that need most to learn. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Yeah. Well, first of all, I, I love cis straight people. My parents were cisgender and straight. So, you know, it's cool. It's cool. Um, what I always say, <laughs> folks who are allies, it's really, first of all, like you're just saying, is saying like, yeah, the world is getting, I believe, getting better. I think that it's funny because people say there's so many more trans people teach queer history. I teach the culture of, of what we would consider like the anthropology of gender. And I mm. talk about the fact that there have actually yes. been very queer trans people throughout history oh, yeah. since the beginning of time yeah. that challenged gender norms. And, you know, but, but the, the change, the difference now is that there's more acceptance and understanding. There aren't as many laws on the books that threaten us. It is getting to be a more accepting world. And, you know, and that's a good thing. I, you know, I often talk about young people now and, uh, you know, I'm in my forties, I'm a Gen Xer. And I look at young people now and they're showing these statistics that young people, one out of seven of them are identifying as LGBTQ. And a good majority of those people are not using binary pronouns. They're using they, them, or they're using new pronouns, mm -hmm. or they're using identities that, like you had just said, gender fuck or a gender <laughs> where they're not having a gender or they're not using any kind of pronouns. And a lot of people go, you know, it's too much. It's too much. It's, I can't. It is a lot. But you know what? That's the whole point. The whole point is that we're getting to a, a place where we have all of this to, to choose from or nothing if you don't want to. It's all about the autonomy over your own identity. Mm. And I always talk to folks who say that they're cisgender and challenge that and say, you know what? I actually identified as cisgender for the first 40 years of my life. And I was very much a tomboy. I was always asked if I was a boy or a girl. I was always very masculine in, in everything I did, but I identified as cisgender because my concept of being trans was that you were a boy who wanted to be a girl or a girl who wanted to be a boy. It's very binary. 
And Mm -hmm. how I grew up was that it had to include medical interventions. And I know now that that's not true. But I also, I think that even for cis folks, there are gender issues. If you went to Utah on Easter Sunday, you'd be expected to wear a dress. Heather, not you, Marco. Um, but, you know. Um, <laughs> oh, I'm familiar. Yeah. All these norms in society, yeah, you know, that dictate what we can do and how we act. And it's everything from the minute you're born or before you're born, mm-hmm. when they see that ultrasound and they go, oh, well, there's a penis. So there's a vagina. And then so much is put on that. Mm-hmm. And part of my job and the privilege I have is challenging that and going, why is that important? Why, why do we do that? And then why do we set gender roles based on those norms? And then what is gender in the first place? Gender is a social construct that changes throughout time and society. And gender is based on a sexual assignment. It's based on something a doctor or a midwife looks at genitalia and goes, well, you're a boy or you're a girl. And what a lot of people fail to realize is that 2% of births don't fit into those categorizations. There's 2% right. of births at about 60,000 children a year in this country that actually fall outside of that binary, whether it's their external genitalia, their internal genitalia, their chromosomal patterns, all of those factor in to the fact that it cannot be reduced to just male and femaleness and penis and vagina. I liken it to the old concept of viewing the universe versus the new concept of viewing the universe. Oh, you know, the the sky is a blanket with holes in it for stars, you know? And, (laughs) and, you know, before you know it, like somebody's got a telescope uh, and 300 years later, we know that the universe is like dozens of billions of years and like 93 million light years, billion light years across. And it's like, it's made of this and it's made of that. And it's like, there are wonders out there that are greater than any imaginings of ours and that's kind of sort of what's happening now on the social yeah. on the social sense because of all of these misconceptions that really have been there since like I don't know the hunter gatherer days I suppose you know that it's like is, yeah. oh you're born with a shape like this well you get to wash the dishes you're born with a shape like this you get to hunt the rabbits and that is such uh, a you're absolutely right non-nuanced way of looking at it and we are living through an age of ever increasing nuance right now we are living through yeah. a, an, an evolution of diversity like everywhere, right? Mm-hmm. From the world of yeah. like artificial intelligence to gender identity, all of these things. And so everything is becoming much greater nuanced than before. And you're talking about the newer generations, even being sort of post-identity identity people. And yeah. I really enjoy you know that. You know what's so cool? You know what's so cool? This is why I love my job. Every day I get in here, there is something, there's either a new term or there's a, a new, somebody who comes out in a different way. And, you know, I remember this time last year when Elliot Page came out, it was the first time in my life I heard about a trans masculine person who had identified as a lesbian for so much of his life, mm-hmm. but knew that there was something to that that didn't feel right. Because that's how I felt for 20 years, you know? But that was the language I was raised with. Mm-hmm. And when he came out, and he said, you know, my journey is fragile and I'm still playing around with pronouns using he and they, but he also got top surgery, which I got top surgery. And I just remember thinking this is so amazing because this is adding to the complexity of what we are really understanding about gender. And what I really love doing as someone who is a radical queer activist is really looking also at the intersection of sexuality and sexual orientation Mm -hmm. and our gender identity and our gender expression and the relationships we find ourselves in. Because for a lot of us, 
when we transition, which is usually a very ongoing process, it's not an A to B thing. It affects our relationships and how people see those relationships. Mm -hmm. For a lot of trans folks, if they transition, um, some folks might see that relationship as heteronormative. And um, a lot of trans folks are like, I'm not hetero. I'm in a queer relationship. Or they might transition and go, yes, I do want to see it seen as a straight man with a straight woman. And that is how people see us. But it is amazing to me how sexuality and gender identity have this incredible overlap that we can look at and apply terminology and understanding to. And I love that. I lo- every day I get in here and I go, oh, there's new stuff. Let's go. Let's let's see what this is about. And um, I think social media has helped increase the visibility of those things. Mm-hmm. But, I'm, you know, what comes with that is people saying it's too much. It's too fast. I can't do this. And um, well, I say, it's well, so much language. work. Gosh, Sai, yeah. that's so much work. Why are you doing this yeah. to us? You know, yeah. aren't we supposed to like? <laughs> I gotta learn just... a dozen new terms a week. What the heck, man? We I just get speak to, English to a certain point, and then we like coast for the rest of our lives, right? Like we're that's just done. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and going back to the comment that you made much earlier in the beginning of our interview about you know these people that you know think that the world is such a is the way it's supposed to be about the time when they have their brains fully baked you know in their 20s or whatever and then they stop evolving from that and you know to me it's the same as somebody making the argument that they shouldn't be using the internet because it wasn't there when they were 15 right yeah right it's like well yeah. i suppose you don't have an email account then grandpa right <laughs> <laughs> right. And I always tell folks, I say in all cultures, language shifts and it changes. And culture and it shifts. Usually, yeah. And, you know, we have this understanding that in other cultures, there are words you do not say anymore. Okay. Oh, yeah. That, you know, and people can call it political correctness or whatever you want to call it. I call it being a decent human being. But, you know, if you were able from the 60s to stop saying certain words about people of color and, you know, evolve in that or evolve in how we see women in society and how we treat them, then let's apply that same energy to queer people. Yeah. And, you know, I always make a joke. I always I use a lot of humor in my trainings. I think a lot of people are really uncomfortable sometimes learning these things. But I say in the beginning of my training, I go, look, I'm going to fully acknowledge that there's this huge alphabet soup and that it goes on and on forever. It's plus, plus, plus all this. I said, Uh you know, honestly, I don't even know what it all means. I don't know what all those letters are. I, uh, to be honest with you, I think we're just fucking with you. I think we just add letters just to keep you on your toes. I think that we're almost out of letters now. So pretty soon we're going after emojis. I I don't know what we're going to do after that, but we're doing that just to fuck with straight people, you know, and then. You know, you, you get that because, yeah, it's exhausting and I get it. Mm-hmm. So I always tell people, listen, it's okay to say LGBTQ+. That's okay. I remember when it was just LGB. But if you say the gay community, excluding trans, non-binary, gender identity folks. So, yeah, and, and a lot of people need to hear that, oh, we don't say homosexual anymore. You know, because there's a there is a generation that was raised with the word homosexual. Oh, they yeah. were raised with other offensive terms that were rooted in, you know, medical ignorance. And, and so yeah. I often do this checklist and it, I call this part of the training how to not be an asshole. Yes, These please. are the words we don't use anymore. Yes. Take them out of your vocabulary. You Why know, do you use this checklist. Well, hold on. I yeah. want to know what. Yeah. The... <laughs> where Where is it that you use this checklist? I'll send it to you. I'll send you my PowerPoint. <laughs> Yay! That's awesome. No, go ahead and and and, and do the checklist right now. Please. It'd be wonderful to hear it. Well, here here's one thing I tell folks is that with the with the term transgender, 
a lot of people say transgendered and I always laugh because I'm like, what happened to us? You know, you wouldn't say that Ellen DeGeneres got lesbian. It didn't, something didn't happen. To I mean, that her, sounds right? like a nice night out. So, <laughs> right? so like, we don't, we don't say transgendered. We don't say things like hermaphrodite. That is just very old school medical based terminology. We would say intersex now. We would not say, uh, there's also a big discourse in the lesbian community that I really love to unpack. And that is the concept concept of the term stud. Stud is a term that came about in the 50s and 60s when lesbian spaces, especially bars, were very racist and did not include people of color. And the Mm -hmm. term came about created by women of color for women of color. And actually, even the term lesbian, and and a lot of people will fight me on this too, doesn't have to be rooted in womanhood. There are non-binary lesbians. There are lesbians who use he, him, and they, them pronouns. And historically, lesbians have been uh, gender non-conforming. But the term stud, whenever I see a white lesbian use that term, I like to call people in and not out, you know, because I feel like it's very threatening to call you out. If you're an asshole, I'll call you out. But if you're trying to be a better person, I'll call you in and say, you know, hey, um, what's your what's your background? What are you know, what's your makeup? What is your race? And if somebody says, you know, I'm Swedish, Irish, or I'm as white as white can be. And I say, OK, well, the term stud that you are using, you're actually appropriating a term that was created for a marginalized community. And I understand you probably think this is a really cool term to use, but there are other terms you can use like butch that would describe your aesthetic and your gender expression. And the term stud is not appropriate for a white lesbian to use. So Mm. sometimes it's just having those conversations. Um, And one of the big things, another hill that I will die on is the concept that trans and non-binary folks don't owe people a certain aesthetic. If I say I'm non-binary, I am non-binary, but if I want to wear makeup tomorrow and a dress, which I assure you I do not, but if I (laughs) wanted to, that's my right to do that. Just like a cisgender woman could wear a a suit if if she wanted to. And she has. Trans women don't owe people hyper-femininity to make you feel comfortable. And I think for a lot of folks, not just outsiders, but people in the queer community, want trans people to be hyper-feminine and hyper-masculine. They want trans men to have deep voices and facial hair and be ultra-butch because then we we can accept their masculinity and say they are a trans man. Again, and it's with just non-binary easier. people, they want this androgyny. They don't want me to show any femininity or any masculinity. They want me completely neutral of any gender expression. And that's not theirs to determine. My gender expression is mine to determine. And, you know, especially any folks given who are day. gender fluid, then mm-hmm. they have that right to express themselves however they want. Um, and th- those are the things that I say in my trainings where sometimes I'll look around and you'll see these like light bulbs go off and go, oh, okay. And I say, when you do those things, you're harming the community and you know, you're not being the best ally you can be. Absolutely. No, it's fascinating. Uh, I'm actually reminded of a time Early 2000s, I met a person who was a man in uh, a lady's dress, right? And uh, Mm -hmm. this was a a queer event. And uh, I was like, oh, cool. So how long have you been out? Like after conversation for a few minutes, he's like, oh, I'm not gay. I'm a Mm cross-dresser. And my Uh 20-year-old mind was just like blown. I'm like, wait, what? (laughs) There's a difference. (laughs) Well, and I I tell people, I say... Cross-dressing is something that is usually outside of gender identity and sexuality. Cross-dressing is usually seen as a fetish. It is usually straight, you know, cis people putting on opposite sex clothing. Um, But that, again, those are not concrete, rigid terms. People can kind of, within that, 
be flexible, right? And mm -hmm. I also think like, look at the concept of drag. And as, as a drag artist myself, um, I think drag traditionally, most people would think of like gay men wearing women's clothing and trying to look like women. Right. There are many types of drag. There is camp drag, which you, the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence, we do camp drag. Mm -hmm. We do very flamboyant, in your face, activist drag. Mm -hmm. Some of us do it in very femme ways. Some of us do it in very vulgar ways. Um, but <laughs> it's drag so wonderful. is performance art. <laughs> drag is a persona that you take on for performance or fundraising, but straight people can do drag. In fact, in this in this new season of RuPaul Drag Race is going to be the first cisgender straight drag queen. And there is a lot of discourse in our community about that, of people going, yeah, they don't have the right to do that. Da -da -da -da. Drag is inherently just challenging gender norms, whoever you are. And drag, what I find fascinating is that's another space where you see multi-gender pronoun use. You know, when I'm out of drag, I'm he, they again, but when I'm in drag, I'm she, her. For a lot of drag artists during the daytime, they might be gay men that use he, him throughout the day. Mm -hmm. But at night, you know, if you are Bianca Del Rio at night, that is she, her. Bianca is a, a feminine persona. So I love all that stuff. <laughs> That's beautiful. Going back to an earlier thing that you said in the interview, you were talking about that you like to list off trans people through history in order to yeah. challenge the idea yeah. that it is a new occurrence in our society. I was wondering if you could enlighten our, our unwashed masses with a small list or maybe just one example of a trans person in history as you see it. Well, <laughs> it's funny you put me on the spot. I'm like, there, there are people obviously who historically have fought. I mean, when you look at like the character of Mulan, that was based mm. on folks who did take on trans identities to do things, mm. right? Um, the, the issue is, is that in history, they wouldn't have considered themselves trans. They would have considered themselves taking on a, let's say opposite sex persona for their identity or for safety, but would not consider themselves trans. So a lot of the folks that I would speak on were not known as trans. Like let's take the, the concept of Prince, right? Prince wrote a song and said, I am not your woman. I'm not your man. I'm something you would never understand. Amen. And Prince as an artist was always very gender fluid in his presentation, mm -hmm. but did not identify as trans. Identified as a very heterosexual guy who liked to really, and David Bowie, Boy George, and a lot of these folks who did not use the term trans because again, like when I came out in the nineties, I would have never said I was trans. I, if you would have told me 20 years ago, you're going to identify as trans and I'd be like, get the fuck out now. <laughs> like, I'm a tomboy. I'm a bush lesbian, all these things because our understanding has changed. Mm -hmm. But I think that the more historians look at who people were and we look at, um, there's a show, I think it's on Showtime, Gentleman Jack about the story of Ann Lister and how she took on the persona of a masculine person. But Ann Lister probably wouldn't have considered herself transgender, but she used she, her, and then he, him pronouns. And then, it, you know, um, you know, ended up being in relationships with other women as a man. Um, and then you look at what really blows people's mind is when you look at career history, because here's the thing, history we know has been whitewashed. Mm -hmm. We know that what they are taught in schools is not an accurate depiction of this country's history, let alone world history, right? That we don't learn the contributions of people of color. It's also been very cis-washed mm -hmm. and very hetero-washed mm -hmm. to the point where if you look at uh, Eleanor Roosevelt, Eleanor Roosevelt was in a very long-term affair with another woman. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are love letters that they have found. She would wear jewelry from this woman at the inauguration 
of her husband, she wore this jewelry from her lover. But the fact is, Aww. we would have never had a first lady that this country respected and accepted if she was openly gay. Mm-hmm. No. And there were so many people who were gay, and we know they were gay, and they were not out. And we find out years after their death that they were trans or that they were gay. And it shows that we're getting better as a society. The fact that right now it blows my in mind that we have openly gay NFL players, openly gay rap stars like Little Nas X. Secretary we of Transportation. Yeah. Yeah, we we have a dude who ran for president, openly gay, with his husband by his side. If I had that kind of positive representation when I was a kid, I would have come out so much sooner. I mean, I think society would be so much better. But I also, you know, as I say that, I never encourage people to come out if it's not safe. I think it's very dangerous to say, and actually Joy Behar did this the other day on The View. And she said, you know, if all these family members came out as gay at Thanksgiving, it'd be a much better, and fuck her. You know, she is a straight cis person encouraging people to risk their safety to come out to what proved to you how many queer people there are out there. Hmm. Um, We have to acknowledge that most queer kids, when they come out, they're homeless or they face abuse or bullying from school. So it's, it's irresponsible to say that queer people or trans people need to come out to teach us, but it does help. Especially if you got no skin in the game yourself. Exactly. <laughs> that part. <laughs> also that. So may, yeah. I, may I ask you, what led you? So I know that you came out uh, in the 90s, but then mm-hmm. you you now consider yourself trans as of, what, one or two years ago? What prompted that uh, understanding or choice or awareness? How would you describe that? If, if I What's may interesting, ask. I often, it's like this aha moment that ha- happens. And I think it's, it's very similar for a lot of folks to their sexuality, where they find themselves in an environment. And for a lot of folks, it's when they, and they kind of reach adolescence and they're like, oh, I don't have these feelings, you know? Um, for me, I was always a tomboy growing up and I constantly was asked, are you a boy? Or are you a girl? Mm-hmm. Because I was like the class clown and I was really good at deflecting things, I would just say, fuck you. That, that was my response. <laughs> and I didn't know that you didn't, you didn't have to be a girl if you don't want to be a girl or a boy. And as I got older, I was like, okay, you know, I'm going to be a butch lesbian. That's what I'm going to be. And I'm going to just rock that. I'm going to be a tomboy and androgynous. And then I got to a point years later where I understood the concept of being gender non-conforming. I said, okay, well, I can be cisgender, be gender non-conforming. And I was literally teaching. And I looked at the term cisgender, which is to say that you are, you identify as the gender that you were assigned in accordance to the sex you were assigned at birth. And I looked at it and it was this aha moment where I said, that is not me. It's just not me. Mm. And I was scared. I was, I, I knew that I would have support from my partner, but I had two six-year-olds that there were actually, I think there were five at the time. And I thought, how are they going to respond to this? It is, it's very hard to explain these things. Am I going to change my name? Am I going to change my pronouns? Am I going to have medical intervention? And all of these are choices that we make that do not determine our transness, but often will affirm us. And so I took a couple of steps. I changed my name. It is a variation of my other name, which made it easier for me to remember. Mm. Um, But the more I started using it, I got what you call gender euphoria. When people would say sigh, I would go, yeah, okay, yeah, that's me, you know, that's me. And um, I got to a point where I knew that I was experiencing a lot of dysphoria from my chest. I had previously uh, 36D, oh, wow. which, which are pretty big. They're, Damn. you know, they're like two chihuahuas. I always tell people, like, if you were to hang <laughs> two chihuahuas off your chest, that's what it would be. Nice puppies. It was very, 
<laughs> yeah, well-fed chihuahua, very well-fed chihuahua. And um, <laughs> I think I've met a couple of those. <laughs> and I tell people, I didn't realize the agony that that caused me, the dysphoria that that caused, that I really loved the winter time because I could wear hoodies and scarves and layer and hide. But mm. a lot of trans people don't like the summertime because like, especially here in Vegas, it's 120 Yeah, mm -hmm. and you cannot layer. Right. And if I would go to a pool party and I'm wearing a tank top, I would find myself doing this all the time. Mm. Um, I, I wore a binder and it's very it can be very dangerous to do that. It can you know, it can affect your breathing. It can affect your skin, everything. It's very constricting. Mm. But wearing a binder for me was the only thing that helped that dysphoria. So I got to a point a couple of years ago where I said, you know, I think I want top surgery. And I remember people saying, well, you've got to be trans. And I was like, but do I? And I wasn't identifying as trans at that point. I was identifying as gender non-conforming. I went to the plastic surgeon, great plastic surgeon here in town, amazing guy. And I said, I just don't want my breasts anymore. They, they cause me so much. I, I can't be myself. And he took me through the options. And he actually said a lot of non-binary people get top surgery. And he, I said, do I need to be on hormones? He said, no. He said, I don't, because that's all gatekeeping. Those are all boxes people want you to check. They want you to change your name, your pronouns. You want you to get on hormones, all of these things, have all the, these surgeries and things. For me, my dysphoria was really rooted in my chest and it really bothered me. When I got the top surgery, there's a little, there's a little inside joke that trans masculine people do when they go in for top surgery and we all tell each other to do this. So it's just a known thing. We wake up from top surgery and we, we find a nurse, anybody, well, it doesn't matter, but somebody who works there and we pull them over. We go, Hey, can we come here? And they ask you, Hey, or how are you doing? You know, cause you're kind of loopy from the anesthesia and that's a pretty serious major surgery. And you say, wow, I'm glad I got that off my chest. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> But I remember waking up from that surgery and looking down and crying because I finally felt like me. I finally felt like the person I'd always wanted to be. And as, that's when I started doing TikToks because I wanted to document that journey of top wow. surgery for other folks. Cause I did, I only knew one person in my life who had top surgery and I had a lot of questions. And um, so I started doing TikToks about top surgery and then eventually about my gender journey. And that's really what my TikToks are about is about gender identity. And I've gotten to the point now where people say, well, do you want to do other things? And I go, you know, maybe in the future, I might want to take testosterone for right now. You have to, with any medication, any medications we use, we mm -hmm. always look at the pros and the cons of it. Right. And for testosterone, um, for a lot of people who take it, you go through a second puberty. Anytime you're on hormones, whether it's estrogen or testosterone, you're on a second puberty. I didn't like puberty the first time around. I wasn't a fan of it. It's off. Uh, <laughs> the pimples. I, I don't the, recommend it. The awkwardness, the smell. No, thank you. The fucking no, mood swings. Um, <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. So I'm, I'm weighing out the side effects that could happen. And for me, I don't want the side effects. And so I'm not on testosterone. But that doesn't take away from my transness just because I'm not doing those things. Well, good for you. That's awesome. Yeah. And I, I'm sure I speak for both of us when I say that we are learning a lot and we really appreciate getting a, a deeper and a more nuanced perspective. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of what this episode is about. <laughs> so on TikTok then, what is your handle? Is, are they called a TikTok um, handle? Which one? What is it? Name username, your I think it's, well, you have a username and then you have like a, a hand, you have like two names. You have your name and then you have like your handle or your username. Um, and my username is the gender rebel. So, or you can look me up under my name and it'll, it'll come up. But 
um, when I first started doing the TikToks, I was identifying as transmasculine and really talking about my journey from kind of identifying as lesbian and well, first really being cis and straight for the first 18 years of my life, mm-hmm. you know, and then get going to college and then really discovering who I am and everything. Um, and the TikToks really allowed me to meet other people in, in a virtual setting of like, oh, here's other transmasculine people, meeting non-binary people who are masculine or femme of center. And those are concepts that I kind of knew about. But you know, again, until you see yourself represented in other people, you don't know that you exist, you mm. know? And there's a validation that comes with that. And so I got to the point where I'm like, you know, I really like the concept of being non-binary, of being like, you know, somebody handed you to this gender and you're like, no, thank you. You know, I, I'm doing my own thing. And so I like that uh, as the gender rebel, I can uh, do a lot of terms I do a lot of things about queer history. I'm really proud of the fact, I mean, if there's one flex that I have for the last two years, it's that I have, in a way, taught a whole new generation about queer flagging and signaling. And there's this generation that doesn't know about the hanky code that we we used decades ago, mostly because of safety, or the carabino code that lesbians use. It's so funny because younger queer people are like, oh, wow, this is fascinating. What did a a red bandana meant this and a black bandana meant that? And oh, keys on the left meant this and that. And they're just fascinated by it. And I go, well, do understand though, that was really rooted in safety. And the fact that before apps, before dating apps and social media, you would go to a gay bar, you didn't have your phone, you would see people and want to know what you were into without, you know, you, you would have to signal. Or it was a way to flag out of safety. Like now you have things like the black, uh, the black ring signifying that you're asexual or the white ring signifying that you are aromantic. And a lot of people don't know about them. Um, or like the femme flagging that happened in, when was it? It was like 2012, where women were getting like uh, one nail colored a certain uh, you know, color. And this is a way for feminine lesbians to flag that they were queer. And then straight women kind of appropriated it and called it like accent nails. And so, you know, so I think it's a really important part of queer history to understand that we had to communicate with each other of who we were and what we were into um, before we had these to do it for us, you know. And before you had forums and forums and forums online, you know, to uh, to exercise that very liberating identity experimentation. or hookup apps where you can literally use the GPS and go, I'm into this. I'm right here right now. You're 50 feet away, whatever it is. Where my generation, I always say we had to go uphill two ways to find a gay bar and then <laughs> go in there, buy some drinks, hit on people. It was complicated and it wasn't as immediate and it wasn't as accurate. And, you know, but that was that was queer culture 20 years ago. And now we're in this new place where you can literally just find it here, like, boom, swipe up and right and whatever. It's like left uber right, booty, kind of, you know. You know? <laughs> uber booty. <laughs> I like it. Exactly. Uber booty. I think I'm going to trademark that one as well. Uber booty. It's be good. Oh, my God. Oh, uber booty. <laughs> Please, Uber, don't sue us. Instead, just develop Uber booty. <laughs> I really appreciate your candor. I really appreciate the energy that you have. You are a storm. You're amazing. (laughs) Yeah. 
I really am enjoying uh, having this conversation with you, and I'm assuming Heather is too. This is simply a fantastic, and it's a beautiful mm-hmm. mind-opening experience. Thank you. I'm really excited to share this with listeners and, you know, all you millions of listeners out there. Yes, the hundreds of trillions across the galaxy who are yeah. our listeners from today, the first time, the first day that we actually have anything on the internet is today. We're recording like just a few hours after we've released our first five episodes, even though mm-hmm. this is a later episode. So it's uh-huh. all time wibbly wobbly. Wibbly wobbly, uh, timey wimey. Uh, but yeah, no, it's it's really fantastic. You know what's cool about, about podcasts is, um, you know, they're relatively new, right? Within the past couple years, they've really been popularized. What's so cool is we're having a conversation conversation between people who might not really know their different cultures and we're able to share this space and I always call this like these courageous conversations that we have where mm-hmm. um you know we're safe we're in a safe space so if you say something and it's like can I say that yeah but let's let's unpack it and and see what it's about mm-hmm. and I love that and I feel like as a society if we were able to do that more we were able to have these podcast kind of spaces where we talk to each other and we ask these questions we would be so much more evolved mm. and understanding. Because to me, that's what a good podcast is. It's having a conversation with folks and really making it casual. Mm-hmm. Like we're just talking, we could be at a bar. We're just talking, we're having a good time, you know? That's what a good podcast is. And listeners pick up on that energy of like, wow, we're just listening to people to just, you know, discussing something. Mm-hmm. And I love that. I love that. I, I fully agree with you. And that's one of the reasons that we're doing this is because Marco knows my, one of my like big tenets uh, in life and, and why I feel so many people are, you know, have anxiety or depressed or just have difficulties because they lack true and meaningful connection. So if we can find a way and a forum to connect, uh, it's just, well, hopefully help to make the world a better place. Just break down those barriers that impede connection. Mm -hmm. Misunderstanding is one of those. Mm -hmm. It's, I think it's the cornerstone of getting to a, a society where we see each other in a respectful way and understand that we're all humans and, you know, to recognize the differences too, because it's like, you know, there are people who are like, well, I don't see color. Of course you see color, you see color blind, but it's <laughs> also like, you can't be gender that. blind, you know? Yeah. And we do need to acknowledge that there are differences and that we face different kinds of discriminations. But at the end of the day, you know, we got this to this place with marriage where like, I wanted to marry my wife for the same reason straight people wanted to marry each other. Obviously yeah. the tax breaks, it's really great. <laughs> and people don't realize, you know? Obviously the tax nice. breaks. <laughs> Even then, I mean, you say it as a joke, but it isn't. It really is about being represented in the same way as others, yeah. you know, in the eyes of the federal government for Pete's sake. Or, I mean, if something was to, ha- to happen to one of us and the other person, you know, say we're in the hospital. Yeah. Marco knows that no matter what, he can be at my side because he is my legally married spouse. And yeah, uh, yeah it, it just makes sense. It's a right that, that everyone should yeah. enjoy if they're in love, period. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, or- and it's interesting, you know, gay marriage. I remember I lived in California during Prop 8. Oof, and I remember no the attacks on queer people and queer relationships. And there was this whole thing that the biggest argument was like, well, if we allow gay people to get married, it's going to be a slippery slope and it's going to destroy society. You know, I've checked in on my You're going to be marrying friends. a tree. You're going to be marrying a goat, whatever. Yeah. Right. You're going to, yeah. And people. heterosexual marriage is going to be threatened. We haven't done anything to destroy the fabric of society. And it's the same thing with trans rights. We're not trying to 
destroy society. We're trying to be seen as human beings. We're we want to be included the same thing. We want to play sports. We want to pee. We want to, you know, all of these things. There is not a threat to civilization, but it takes understanding who we are and, you know, knowing that we're human beings and to be seen as that, that we are not, you know, trying to break apart society, that that's not what we're doing, you know? Um, an argument that I've made, yeah. an argument that I made in a conversation about this a while ago is uh, when that particular point was brought out that, oh, no, it could be a, it is seen as a threat to society. It wasn't a person speaking for himself, but it was a person like, you know, speaking essentially giving voice to that particular side of, of the argument just to, to have the conversation. And I was like, well, if your society is based on exclusionism and othering and violence, then, yeah, it's a threat to your society and we're coming to get you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I. it's funny because when people talk about gender diversity in history, I always talk about the concept of control. And when people say we've never had they, them pronouns or gender diverse people, I often go, I look at different cultures in every single culture from Mexican culture, where you have the Mushe of Mexico, or you have the warriors of Indonesia, or you have a really good example is the two spirit people mm -hmm. of mm -hmm. indigenous tribes. Mm -hmm. And when you look at the two spirit community, this community goes back you know, decades and decades and Thousand decades, years, long yeah. before the colonizers came over. Yeah. When the colonizers came over, people, when they colonized and they, you know, they, they obviously committed genocide against entire generations and communities, um, the two-spirit people have al already embraced this concept of, of understanding that people can carry the spirit of masculinity and femininity, and they are often seen as having a much better understanding and ability to lead, you know, uh, the community and celebrations. And two-spirit people have been around forever using they, them pronouns in this country, in, in North America, that's seen in over 50 tribes. But when the colonizers came over, they squashed that. And they mm -hmm. said, well, you know, we want women to be women and do women things and men to be men and do men things. Like you were talking about hunting and gathering. Mm -hmm. And as long as they could control that mm -hmm. and they could control gender roles, they could also try to control sexuality. Mm -hmm. And it's really about control. That's all it is. And we see this even now with reproductive rights. It really is not what they say. It, it's about controlling people. It's yeah. about controlling women. It's about controlling queer people or indigenous. All of this is about controlling people. It is. It's so. the spectacle of control, 100%. Yeah. So, and that's, that actually reminds me, we had a conversation with Beth, you know, the executive director of Safe House Nevada. And oh, yeah. All about. <laughs> She's a good friend. Hey, Booth. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Abuse and what an abusive relationship comes down to is control and domination. So in yep. any sort of abusive power dynamic, it yep. always comes down to who holds control over whom. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And in what ways they do. You know, it's mm -hmm. interesting. Beth and I met years ago. I was training uh, the staff and the volunteers at Safe House in, in Safe in how to be more supportive of our community. Mm -hmm. First, it is convincing people that um, abuse in relationships and unhealthy relationships can be seen in the LGBTQ community as well. Yeah. We see different tactics. We see different ways in how abusers abuse, like the threat to out their partner if their partner is not out to their family or if they're in the military or things like that, that that is a whole different level yeah. of how to control someone and abuse them. Uh -huh. um, the HIV AIDS crisis still has an element of control. If you have the health insurance, you are paying for your partner's HIV medications. You can say, well, listen, 
Um, I'm going to, I'm abusing you. And if you leave me, you're not going to have health insurance. One of the big things also that we wow. see with uh, HIV positive people is the threat to leave them alone and dying. Because in the 80s, so many gay men were ostracized by their families and in fact died alone in hospital beds, much like we see happening this past year with COVID where people were dying alone in their hospital beds. And so without family or friends around them, this triggered a lot of folks in our community to remember that time in the 80s when that happened. And so for a lot of people, they'll say, you want to die alone as an HIV, I'm leaving. You, you can die alone. Mm. And that is enough to hold control over someone and to use that tactic as a way to keep them in your life. It's tragic. And right. Beth and I have often had these conversations about how queer relationships have different kinds of abuse. But when you really look at it and boil it down, it is control. It's mm -hmm. always control. There's just different ways we see it in our communities. We see it in, in relationships where there's trans people as well, of people saying, you know, I'm not going to pay for your surgery if you continue and you don't let me control you. And so it is, it's, it's fascinating to me, but I think that we need to get to a place also in understanding that domestic violence historically has had a framework of cisgender straight women always being the survivors. There are men who are victims. Mm -hmm. There are lesbians who are victims of domestic violence, trans people, non-binary people. And we have to open up services and understanding to that or else those people will be abused at disproportionate rates because there is not affirming resources for them. Well, that makes me extra glad that there are people such as yourself fighting to make things available and more equal and parity. Yeah, thank you for that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, it's, you know, it's, I, I believe in incremental change. I really do. I think with social justice, you know, we go a couple steps forward and then we go a couple steps back. That's just how it works. And we see this in race relations. We see this, with, oh, sorry, with religion. We see this with everything. And like I said, with gay rights, we've gone forward and then we've gone back. And, you know, we thought in, was it 2014, 2015, we had this victory with gay marriage. Mm -hmm. And then in 2016, a man was elected to the, to the president, <laughs> to the presidency. Yeah that put our rights back decades. Yeah, it's been many, like six years ways. of backlash yeah. since yeah. then. Yeah, and it yeah. was it was hard. I mean, there were times in the last couple of years where I just felt like quitting, where I thought, what am I doing? This guy's in the White House, we're not going to do shit. Like, what, we, what can we do? But what we could do was affirm each other, support each other, be there, you know, keep fighting the good fight. And I see it as a privilege that I get to do this every single day that I get to be an agitator, that I'm literally getting paid to cause good trouble. I get paid <laughs> to upset the system. And I love that. And I, I I get to work with a great team of people and colleagues that that we challenge each other in doing that work too. So I love it. I love it. We're big fans of coyote magic. Yes, you we know? are. It's, uh, oh, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. necessary to, to fuck with people. Yeah. You know, you got to yeah. shift them coyote a little bit. Coyote medicine always <laughs> be messing with their sense of like stability and balance yeah. because that's the only way that you grow is there is no growth without crisis. And, you know, and that's yeah. one of the things over the last five, six years in the sort of gender experimentation community has been in a state of crisis and perhaps... That is one mm -hmm. of the reasons that there is such a huge explosion right now over the past year or two of uh, of of this sort of identity play, especially online. Especially, I've seen it in media, in like hit television series. I mean, everything like yeah. Sense8 to like so Big good. Mouth, you know, all of these things. Everything yeah. is just it's, everybody cool? is kissing isn't everybody cool? on television right now. It's, it's so great. Nuts. It's wonderful. <laughs> it's it's like, so cool. I, like every day, they're like, look at this character that's coming. 
look at this non-binary kid and cartoons and comics and you know in the 80s there were rules there were regulations of marvel and dc had Mm -hmm. regulations that they could not have out comic superheroes right so now you see superman's son is coming out you see loki as gender fluid you see um you know characters that we knew were canonically i have a hard time with that according to their canon they were queer. We know this, right? Deadpool is pansexual, okay? SpongeBob is asexual. But for so long, again, that was cis and, and hit washed. But I, I want to say this to when you said being uncomfortable. I have a lot of folks in trainings who raise their hand and go, I'm nervous. I'm uncomfortable. I go, that's good. That's good. Because that means you're growing. It's a beginning I mean, of evolution. For me, yeah, I, I consider myself an ally to the community of people of color. But I know that there's still always work to do. Mm-hmm. To being anti-racist, to fighting white supremacy as a white person, I know that I will always have room to grow, room to learn, and there should always be a level of being uncomfortable because being an ally is active work and listening and doing that. And, you know, when people say, I'm 100%, I'm great on it, I go, no, you will <laughs> always have work to do. And it, 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 it bothers me. Another another hill I will die on is when people say that the A in LGBTQIA plus is ally. It is not. It has never been for that. It stands for asexual, right. aromantic, or agender, right? Oh, I thought it was hard um, But <laughs> We do that just to mess with people, yeah. Um, but being an ally, you're not a part of the community. You're not discriminated based on your sexual orientation or your gender identity. You, you might face a lot of hate for being an ally, but you don't face, you don't have the same personal um, issues that come to you. And being an ally, it, you don't get a letter. You don't get a trophy. You don't get that. It's it's great that people are allies and we need allies in the fight. We need people standing aside, long, aside with us doing that. But A is not for ally. For the and, and the thing is, with asexual, agender, and, and aromantic folks, they're already erased. They're already invalidated enough that we don't need to take that letter and give it to allies. And this upsets allies sometimes when I say it. They go, well, I, I thought I was a letter. No, you also don't get a flag. I've seen the ally flag, and it's it's a fucking joke. And I go, okay, okay, what's the ally either. flag? Because, you know, grandpa in Wisconsin needs to know. What's the it's ally horrible. Flag? It's, <laughs> it's like this black white stripe with like a rainbow triangle in the middle and i'm just like god are you so desperate that you need your own flag you don't get a flag but you we get want a, a thing flag you. give us a flag <laughs> no flag no ally right? it's like oh my god it's like when people say where's where's the street pride parade i've got we don't get a parade we get the parade you know but like it's and it's it's funny because then that puts people in this place of like oh that makes me uncomfortable and that's that's good Perfect. that is the place yeah, you no, should be great. that's where you can grow it's like look when you've been yeah. murdered by the tens of thousands throughout history you get the damn parade okay (laughs) end of story i was gonna say yeah your parade is being able to walk out your door and live your normal life without fear of fucking dying you you have an entire civilization tailor made to suit your particular identity set you don't need a parade to assert yourself okay yeah it's very nice I mean, I, I can speak from, I, I suppose, the ally side of things uh, that I don't need the flag. I will wave yours right. and right. I will gladly right. wave yours at the presentation yes. and at the parade. I don't need my identity validated. That's what all of freaking human society is for. It's time to step off the center and like, you know, share the balance load, you know? And that that exactly. brings me to another one of our, our points that we touch on a lot is about 
getting our ego out of the way in yeah. our relationships. We, we it's the same thing as a, as a fucking ally. It's mm-hmm. not about yeah. you. Yep. As much as you'd like it to be, you don't need a flag. You don't need a parade. Just be a supportive partner. In the credits role, yeah. you might get your name on the line. You know, I mean, that's about <laughs> it. Okay? Exactly. And I, I sometimes compare it to... Um, you know, I'm I like I said, I'm an ally to the black community and I will be at every BLM protest I can be at and I will be alongside them. I will sign petitions, I will show up, I will commit to doing the work. But at the end of the day, that doesn't make me black. And so exactly. and we have to know our place in yeah. the movement. You have an entirely and, separate uh, folder yeah. of concerns and threats and yep and uh and stresses in your life that inform your worldview and if you lack those concerns and stresses and fears because you're of the privileged side then yeah you don't get to have your own damn flag (laughs) exactly yeah exactly (laughs) it has been a long and wonderful conversation i really feel like we could just talk all day into the night and into the morning and you know we'll like break out the tequila and uh, just take shots and keep talking and and fix the world fix the world with our podcast that four people are listening. <laughs> but honestly, honestly, no, it's it's really fantastic to get to know you, Sai. It yeah. really is. And oh, it's really fantastic yeah. to hear about your Yeah, and I, I, I enjoyed having this conversation. I, I've done a lot of interviews. We actually did a podcast of our own years ago, and we're going to start it up again soon. Awesome. But, you know, there's something about the energy of certain people. I don't know a lot about Zodiac. I don't know a lot about, but I do believe there is energy that happens between people when you have a conversation or you share space in any way. And I felt that for the last hour and a half, I appreciate y'all inviting me into your space to talk about these things. Because like I said, that's where I think we see, you know, that's where we see hearts and minds changing is just talking about these things. And so I am grateful to you for inviting me into this space for sure. Absolutely. Thank you so much. I was wondering if there's any way possible that uh, we could get you to blurb Gender Justice Nevada for us so that people whose curiosity was sparked by this episode could go and find out more. Could you please? Yeah. So we have a website. Um, the, the, I will say this, the donor button, the first donor button is not working. I'm not sure why. Like I said, I'm not a technology person, but we have someone looking at it. So just just mail you hundred dollar bills. That that works. That works. <laughs> Blank checks always good. Uh, you know we've got Venmo. Uh, whatever you want to do, you want to drop off a roll of quarters in the mail slot. That's cool too. But yeah, so genderjusticenv.org is the website. We are also on Facebook. We're on Instagram. I'm on TikTok. A lot of the work I do on TikTok, although it's through my name. Um, is reflective of the work we do here. And uh, I'm going to put a Venmo link on TikTok that goes to our organization because Fantastic. I feel like the work that I, first of all, I do the TikToks here. So I'm at work when I do them. So might as well have the money go to the organization. But yeah, so you can follow us on social media. We always appreciate folks who share the information that we put on there. Um, I we, we share a lot of articles, you know, um, especially this past year when there's been so much misinformation put out there and education that is full of false narratives about trans people in sports or about medical transitioning, things like that. We like to, like I said, share those articles and, and, and share book lists and things like that. And movies. I always tell people, you know, we're, we've all been at home for the last year and a half. There are so many movies right now that are streaming that if you watch them like gender revolution on Disney plus, uh, it's not for kids, 
but it's a really good documentary that Katie Couric did about gender and intersex mm. folks and trans folks. Awesome. And then there is Disclosure on Netflix, which is about trans representation in media that Laverne Cox produced. And when we watch those things about cultures that are unlike ours, that's when we learn. And so I always encourage people when they're at home to sit down and watch some of those. Like you were talking about Sense8. That was groundbreaking that was that series was groundbreaking that show cracked open my heart mm -hmm. it really did it oh, poured yeah. so much good love and light in there and and it was i consider yeah. it one of the bravest shows in existence oh, yeah. and it's also yeah. you know you the wachowskis know. are a particular example as well as like how far we've come like you said like in the past you know even a frictional fictional superhero in a comic book huh? couldn't like say who they were even though like the circumstantial right. evidence was like right. all over the subtext but now you've got yeah. like two siblings who have become trans yep. who are like out as heck and they are like some of the top producers yep. in hollywood for pete's sake that is a that's a victory yeah. there. it's huge and you know it's funny some of my tiktoks in the last couple of weeks we've talked about the matrix trilogy mm -hmm. and because the new one is coming out soon right everyone's all excited about this keanu reeves very it's it's cool so now that it's really on the forefront of people talking about it what we're doing is unpacking the fact that the matrix movies were all about transness the characters were all about trans identities. The fact that Neo was born with a name given to him by machines and then got a chosen name. The fact that he had these two conflicting parts of his psyche, that was, and the Wachowski siblings have said, that was gender dysphoria. The okay. red pill, that's estrogen. There is, you can see all of the clues in okay. that movie that these directors purposely put in there. And now people are examining it and going, oh, huh. okay. Wow. But 20 years ago when those movies were made, they couldn't explicitly say this is about trans identities. Hmm. But now people are getting that and going, and now I actually have to go back and rewatch them. Because yeah, now I gotta go, oh, to. wait a second. At least the first one, because I'm gotta, not very fond of like the next couple of them. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, no, I mean, because when I first saw them 20 something years ago, it was all about like, oh, yeah. look, it's the digital bodhisattva. Aren't I clever? Right. You know? Right. And no, it's absolutely, yeah. it, it was never about that in my head. So now I have to go back and see what the real intended message was by Wachowskis. Absolutely. Yeah. And they, so they've sneaky. said this because people, now that they're out, now that they've both kind of transitioned, as you would say, and they're out, they're like, yep, that's for sure. And we see this with a lot of art. We see this historically, people putting things in art and not saying what it is, but like going, but this, now we can say, this is in fact what we were trying to say. And this was the say. hidden messages that now we are allowed to express. No, I love that is it. wonderful. That is a candle yeah, in the yeah. darkness. That's great. That's almost like a time bomb or something. It's like a time release thing. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Speaking yeah, of time release, we should probably release you of your time commitment to us because I know you've got kids yeah, to go pick kids. up. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for having me. I had a great time. Uh, I appreciate it. And and thank you so much. Thank you, Sai. Awesome. Thank you, Sai. We'll talk soon again. We're. I really hope so. All right. Sounds good. Wow. That was a pleasant chat. I feel like there's so much I didn't know, and yet so much I still need to learn. How absolutely, about you? absolutely. Sai was very informative, and they definitely provided a great amount of intellectual challenge for myself. Hmm. Allowed me to see where I need to make a greater effort and where I could grow bigger. Awesome. I mean, isn't that what a teacher is supposed to do? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And I honestly, I could really have just heard them talking for probably 
probably hours. They are fantastic. I hope to get to meet them one day in the near future, like in person. IRL is that a thing? IRL? <laughs> I don't know. I've been stuck in the studio forever. I'm starting to think the universe is nothing but four padded walls. <laughs> tweak, tweak, twitch, twitch. Maybe it is. <laughs> <laughs> now, really, some of the things that we learned from Sai is that we're at a tipping point right now in the trans community,、mm -hmm. which is similar to like the gay community's tipping point in years past. It's also、uh, unfortunate that this year, because of that tipping point, has been the deadliest year on record for the trans community. The deadliest. That is tragic.、Mm. Absolutely tragic. Absolutely. We learned a very sobering statistic that 40% of homeless teens in the U.S. got kicked out of their homes by their parents after coming out. However, here's a positive: one out of seven young people are identifying as LGBTQ+, and the majority of them are not using gendered pronouns. Fascinating. It's, it's a whole new world, isn't it? <laughs> it makes me feel so、uh, so old. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, that's a thing too. It's、okay. a thing, man. It's a thing. Two、um, percent.、Mm -hmm. That's a statistic that really stuck with me. Two percent. That's one out of fifty. That's an average of sixty thousand children born in the U.S. every year, and they are born outside of the male-female binary model.、Wow. They're born neither little boys nor little girls. They're something in between or beyond. And they deserve to have their voices heard. Yeah, they deserve to be seen as people. Sixty thousand children—that is more than twice the amount of people currently in the U.S. Coast Guard. So, like every year, we get more than two Coast Guards worth of children that are other-sexed. Yeah, that'll put it in perspective. We also talked about how. How code switching is really used by all of us, but how important it is for trans safety. Right. Visibility is a risk. Being visible is to be vulnerable. Right. And so, just being oneself can literally be a revolutionary act. So true.、Uh, we also learned that allies don't get their own flag. <laughs> That's right. No flag. <laughs> Sorry, compassionate straight people. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so to be considered an ally, also it's really incumbent upon us that we work to educate ourselves year after year, not just the one time where you take like you know diversity 101, but year after year because understanding and awareness is always evolving. And we learned that the A isn't for allies after all; it's for our asexual friends. That's right.、Mm -hmm. Asex community is represented in the LGBTQIA+ moniker. And let's always keep in mind that the language we are raised with is. Rarely adequate for the times we are living through. Evolving the language evolves reality, which then evolves language.、Got、It's、it? all a wheel; just keeps going around and around. Language creates your reality; your reality creates your language, and on and on it goes as we evolve through human society together. That's right. So we got to update our personal dictionaries, or we're going to be left behind. Indeed,、mm -hmm. indeed. Well, that's it for our show today. I think. What do you think, Heather? Oh man, I think we covered a lot. Yeah, <laughs> yes, for sure. Yes, we did. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. And remember, you can reach out to us on Facebook at facebook.com/slash/howtoloveforever and Instagram at howtonumeral2loveforever. And if you feel that the show we're putting together provides some value, is good for the world, or just plain entertains you, we would love for you to join our community on Patreon. We have a whole range of relationship levels you can choose from, and the more committed you become. The more we're going to be able to share with you. Join us next week as we break down the five primary communication styles with some tips on how to be a more effective communicator in part one of our two-episode communication series. It's a super informative couple of episodes coming up, and we look forward to sharing them with you. So until then, remember, love bunnies, love deep, love hard, love forever. forever.
Later on, little bunnies. Woo! <laughs> <laughs>